Thank you all very much for coming. My name is Reginald Harris, and I'd like to welcome you to uh, Filene's Basement. No, I'm sorry. It's the Pratt Library. It's a great pleasure to be here and to have, once again, our uh, annual Cave Canem reading. Um, this is one of our series of, uh, our never-ending series, and I say that in a good way, of uh, programs and events here at the library. It's a great pleasure to welcome three fantastic poets and the people who I love to, to read for us. I want to talk a little bit about uh, what this what that dog in the window downstairs is and what Kave Kahnem is. Kave Kahnem is an African-American uh, poetry workshop retreat held every year in June now at the University of Pittsburgh at Greenberg. It's one week where uh, you are semi-sequestered and you have to write a poem a day. Which, and it sounds easy to write a poem a day until you have to actually have it done by 10 o'clock the next morning, in which case it's, all, it's kind of horrible. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of all-nighters being pulled and a lot of hair coming out uh, for those things. There are a range of different writers, different styles, different people at different locations in their writing career that attend the workshop. We try not to uh, impose some type of style or form or, okay, you have to write this particular way. We want to try to make uh, the experience to bring out the best that you have in your work. Today, we have three uh, award-winning uh, authors joining us. First is Samia Bashir, um, the author of Gospel and Where the Apple Falls, uh, finalist for the 2005 Lambda Literary Award. Um, in addition, uh, uh, Samir was a co-editor of Roll Call, a generational anthology of social and political and black literature and art, and also editor of Black Women's Erotica, too. Lyra Van Cleef, uh, Stefana, uh, whose book, um, Open Interval, was a nominee for the National Book Award. You was robbed. <laughs> and uh, Ronaldo Wilson. Um, whose narrative of the life of the brown boy and the white man won the uh, 2001, uh, sorry, uh, Lyra, sorry, won the 2001 Cave Canem Prize. There's an annual prize for uh, first books. And the 2007 uh, Cave Canem Prize was won by Ronaldo for narrative of the life of the brown boy and the white man, um, a series of narrative uh, poems of, um, I'm sorry, uh, prose poems and um, indescribable is the best way to describe Ronaldo. Um, so be prepared. It's a pleasure now for me to just sort of sit down and shut up. And to hear, let's start with uh, Samia Bashir. Thank you. Thank you, Reggie. Thank you, Judy. Thank you, everyone here at the library for having me. I'm exceedingly excited to come here. This is my first snow of the year, so that was exceptionally fun. <laughs> I'm going to start with a couple poems from Where the Apple Falls. Um, I'm just going to jump into it. This first poem is called Power. What are you waiting for? Bath drawn, coffee warm, eggs scrambled, poached, and fried over easy. The baby has been fed, changed, oiled, read to, sung to, and put to bed. Lawn mowed, homework done, living room tidied, floors mopped, tabletops dusted, the car was gassed last night. Fluids checked, windshield wiped, green tree hung from mirror, skin lotioned, nails clipped, lips lined, hair washed, combed and oiled, work clothes have been ironed for the morning. Shoes shined, train fare in your pocket. Wine poured, sofa pillows fluffed, jazz on the player with rhythm and blues doing doo-wop back up. The court, your court, where the ball lies inert, has been swept clean. Net tightened, bugs brushed off, night lights amped, but the gas needs flame to burn. The match needs sulfur to strike. The pot of water needs fire to steam. What's cooking sits at simmer, ready to boil. This next poem, I, I uh, like many people, have a grandmother 
who is an amazing person and who has um, an attic that is legendary in our family. It's kind of like Pandora's box. You are often sent up there to retrieve something that is irretrievable um, and, <laughs> and can get lost for weeks or months in the process. And uh, so this poem, uh, Gwendolyn's Attic, is kind of an ode to my grandmother's attic. Handmade jumpers for mama's first step. Twirling batons and foreign coins which cling to carpet bags. The patch stripes from Stratford's old brown mess hall uniform. Maddie's handloom thread still peeking through Sunday dresses and Friday night shoes. Stocking patch kit in case rationing reclaims the order of that bright red change purse in the corner by the shoebox albums of sepia photos. The sounds of Sephora's naughty laugh. A Prevels Pullman cap plate. Hand-bleached nursing uniforms. Stethoscopes. Shopping bags from that old Hudson's department store still filled with receipts for easy exchange and return. The ribbons the baby used to fly, used to fly around the world. Patent leather shoes from the 1,956th celebration of boulder moving, flight taking. Gussie's loving kick in the pants, Eileen's joyous cackle. Eleanor's blue-eyed grin, the scent of Annie Noble's tobacco. The silent pain Eliza carried, that black woman's alchemy she used to love Willie despite his white man's nose, the angular curve of his fingertips. In the corner... By the peephole window sit clumps of Alabama clay. Mind's eye movies of barefoot summers, sharp-dressing Detroit nights. Amy's ballet slippers hang next to Gloria's dressing oil and Pamela's stitch books, the fifth set of keys to that old Chevy Nova, Socrates's collar, and games for long summer nights when Brett's laughter would fill up the basement. And Harriet's wild explorations concluded with hugs and kisses lifted from that old Negro hymn book. So I'm going to uh, move into uh, some poems from Gospel. And this is uh, the new book. It just came out earlier this year. And it's <laughs> I find that, you know, when you do these things, I don't know how, I honestly don't know how these books get created or made. Um, but I know that once it happens, it just kind of takes on a life of its own and carries you all over the world doing weird things. And, <laughs> and I feel like that's, I look at this book now because um, I kind of actually really haven't looked at it in a month or so. And, um, and when I do, I'm like, this is, this is a weird train that's been carrying me around. And now I'm in Baltimore and happy to be here. I'm going to start with uh, the first poem. The first poem in my books is generally, it's like an offering, an offering to the gods. And in the first book, um, uh, there was a poem called, what was the poem called? That's a good question. Thank you. Called Moon Cycling. <laughs> Thank you, Lisa. And that was an offering to uh, uh, Sankofa, who is a West African deity in the Akan tradition. And this um, is for Alegba uh, and others. It's called At the Crossroads. We argue as if Capulet were Montague. On neither red nor blue can we agree. There is kicking. It hardly matters whose foot starts the dance, running and tripping over path-strewn rocks, how stupid we become at these times, peering back to track any small gain of the other. Cleavers clang their noisy impotence against our steel trap eyes. Dare we slow down, narrow our lids to see the laughing trickster in his two-toned cap? Could it possibly matter any less now? Against a moldy stack of uncashed promissory notes, both borrower and lender stand broke as you speak through my lips and cry with my eyes. Funny how in blindness is contagion, light leaks in from our wavery source. There, the piercing of our congruent laugh to any twisted thing will cling. These red-dusted roads outside of Santa Fe my broken arm, those drunken Washtenaw streams, or that birthday party where you climbed the emerald ash and showed the world your underpants. That hot summer, we swore we couldn't fall. Now rise up and get you over the brook.
We've been reduced to ice-cold water, salt, and well-beaten rocks, as though these old customs could possibly sustain or keep us clean now. In truth, we hardly remember these early folk ways. Ah, but what we have hidden, glory. The angle of dawn on our fingertips, pressed against our mishmash flesh. Your honey-sweet lips upon mine, at the first conscious breath. This next poem is called Juggling Crystal Balls. And the first section of this book, which the last poem and this poem both belong to, are really kind of um, Toy Derricott, who you mentioned. Um, when I first started working on this book years ago, and I was actually at Comic-Con, when the first poem that actually is in here was written. Um, and I was looking at models of resistance and having a conversation with her about that. And um, we kind of landed in a place uh, talking about joy, um, as like kind of an ultimate model of resistance. And that's really what a lot of the first section of the book is about, is kind of the, the road to that landing. This is called Juggling Crystal Balls. A rocket ship to the moon, boarding pass, first-class seats, packed bags, two feet to get up the stairs, and still we stay planted. Every step requires lead lifting. The ground below and ahead invisible. We must go. In this flight taking lies our future. The moon is ours. With its atmosphere we breathe. With its easy gravity we soar. Survival of the journey is no guarantee, but standing here, frozen and inert on earth, secures quiet annihilation. Movement remains our only hope. Every step requires lead lifting. Can't see the ground? Wish it under every step. After all, it is a rocket ship. Flying without a parachute seems silly, but the tougher shot fits this thinning atmosphere. Plus, as missiles, we are lethal. Sure fire, free. And uh, this poem is for uh, Lisa, my benefactress. It's called When the Saints Went. What remained? Barren stalks bowing heads by the fieldful. Rusty air conditioners dripping from warped windowsills. I think I should go back and explain what I'm talking about here. Um, this is um, one of the poems that I wrote in the... Um, in the days of madness following Hurricane Katrina. Um, and I have a lot of friends that live in New Orleans, um, including my sister, who's down there right now. Uh, and so, and thus, a lot of people who were staying with me for months um, afterwards uh, and negotiating all of that, which was really quite a lot. Um, and so this poem is, is really in, in honor of them and what is there. So I'll go again. It's called When the Saints Went. What remained? Barren stalks bowing heads by the fieldful. Rusty air conditioners dripping from warped windowsills. Rock formations retaining roots. Hallowed out caves and dog stumps. Forced ragged, toothy grins. All ablaze. A laser show shot hot through the tinny night. Every husk wore a well-lit protrusion. Every breath, an asthmatic thrush more material than the silence that surrounds each carcass now, voided prayer, cold arthritic grating, remembering notions of breath. Saints, offer a hand to a wheezing shadow. Wish for someone to hold before the sure, sudden twilight. Uh, let's see. This poem... A, a, a poet who I, uh, who I really like a lot um, heard me read this poem once, I don't know, maybe a year or so ago when I was really still finishing this book. And he said to me, you know, a lot of these poems that you're working on, they're kind of like prayers. And um, I said, well, yeah, that's probably true. And, uh, and it is true to some degree, uh, depending on how, you, how, how one 
embraces that word. And I think that this poem kind of kind of sits there. It's called Mental Healing in Modern Times. Wiser women than I have sought this healing. Mind over body, faith over sight. Believe I have received and I shall receive. This healing principle operates in us all. Mind over body, faith over proof. My subconscious will heal the cut on my hand. This healing principle operates in us all. Only fools believe in things which hurt them. My subconscious is healing the cut on my hand. I imagine the indesired. I feel its reality. I am not a fool who believes in things which hurt me. I am in touch with the infinite healing presence within. Imagine the end. Desire it. Feel it real. I believe I have received. I have received the infinite healing presence within. Wiser women than me have sought this. All right, so I'm going to read just two more poems. Um, And this first one is called Climate Change. Uh, It starts off with a a quote from Angelus Silesius, who says, Springtime is at hand. When will you ever bloom if not here and now? And uh, my work definitely rotates around the idea of seasons. Um, uh, it's especially, you can see it in Where the Apple Falls quite clearly, and, and also in some of this work. This poem is definitely a spring-summer poem, but I, I'm going to call it out because of the snow. <laughs> the sun rose noontime like somebody had cussed his mama. Sun had a bone to pick, a score to settle, and had come on up to collect. Late as a birthright, argument on lip, came up blazing steel mill style, wasn't nothing to do but melt. Pour through cotton, pour through silk, pour through linen, seep salt and funk through every fiber, no point trying not to move, no way out. Run if you want to, but that hill is steep. Might be I didn't need that eighth cigarette. Chest full and drum hide tight, sun beating on down, 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 down. My cat died last month, or maybe it was the month before. I should remember, I held her after paying good money to have her killed. Good money. Plus interest to have my sweet baby put down. Afterward, every homecoming meant silence. No one waiting, no one caring whether I was home or not. No one pissed about days and nights when no one crossed the threshold bearing fresh food and a clean plate, even though they promised fucking poets not worth a damn. Now she's dead. Cancer. Nothing to do but hold head up to madness. Life and death. Circumspect. I can't quit smoking. That's a lie. I just won't do it. That's a lie. I keep putting them down. I keep picking them up. Put them down, pick them up. Why do I not just leave it? I do. Leave this breath. Leave these teeth. Leave this tongue. Leave these lips. Leave these fingers. Leave, 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 leave this concentration witness. I refuse to sustain an ongoing focus on what I am supposed to be doing. That's a lie. What I should do, why I should do it, I'll never know. That's a lie. I know. I just don't want to. Leave it. I can't think about it. Leave it. It's all madness, madness, madness. And I had a near-death experience the other day in the botanical gardens. Listen, I'm going to need you to care about this because I care about this. I need you with me. Ready? Care. Walking through lavender cilantro and scallions, running my fingers over blooming poppies, plucking mint leaves from a labyrinth path and popping them under my tongue to clear the taste. Fresh rosemary, northwestern sage, mesmerized by quaking aspens, quaking in the soft breeze, too soft to penetrate this heat, 
Leave this sun and the care, breathtaking, tender, loving care with which each shrub, each flower, each tree, each sprout is planted and placarded and protected and the quaking of the quaking aspens and the breeze. And I'm walking, lost, from my party, see a sudden goose, gander, goose and gander and goslings, a whole damn goose family, walking ahead through gardens to a radiant, rippling pond. What am I going to do? I want to sit by the pond, sit on the bench by the pond and watch gander, goose, goose babies, all that. So I walk closer, closer, and gander starts gathering family to pond, flapping his wings and guiding goose and gosling and gosling and gosling, one after another to water, turning at me, hissing. Every few steps, turning back at me and hissing like a dead, angry cat. And I'm walking through the grass, sandals dodging gargantuan goose shit all the way, getting closer, closer to the bench, closer to the water, closer to gander, and damn if this bird doesn't get his girl and his babies in the water and come after me. Damn if I didn't just get, just about get to the bench, just about sit a few hundred duly dodged bombs behind me when this hissing giganta bird comes squawking, charging, and yeah, I screamed. What the hell? It was a flight monster, mad about his babies. I screamed and screamed and ran, 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 caught, clowned by my two-legged family, who right on time decided to materialize, witness my attempted murder, seize upon wing and claw and oral attack and laugh. Still care? Madness. Leave it. Walking home. Sun sports boxing gloves. Dances light-footed, heavy-fisted, head to south, ground becomes cracked, spread open, used and left. Air gives warning, alerts nose before eyes, smell cinnamon sunlight, smell cayenne flocus, smell sticky musk before it dissipates, raw and abused. The year has been long, I must find grounding, glue to hold me steady through the steadfast storm. Through it all, I require your patience. Ago? and your care. Ame, even, and even when there is somewhere to think, I go, even then there is nowhere to think. Ame, madness, pissy sun, madness, scurrying fowl, madness, teeming self, madness, flesh-eating wind, madness, carrying bitters and sours and not a damn thing to mix them with. Madness, this scorched earth bringing me closer to death. Leave it, it returns. Not the rays, not the breeze which cools them, not the gardens nor the streets which beat them up, down and up, not the quaking trees, not my quivering leaves can do this alone. So I'm going to need you to go ahead and care. Ago, are you here? Ame, good. Ready? Care. And uh, the last poem I'm going to read is the title poem from Gospel. That's called Gospel. Wind in fire, candles on altar, walk through temple, sing. Stir fingers through holy water, pull dampness through hair over temples, loosen plump curls, dance with holy raindrops, breathe. Dance with fire. Sway to altar candles. One, two, three hundred prayers for the living, for the dead, for those yet waiting to enter. How many brides have towed this path, pinching shoes to keep them upright, father arm propulsion through cool ceramic echoes. I slip on rose petals. I dance with fire. I sing high on holy water. I anoint with sensuous, sensuous oils. Make me a holy chamber, and I'll make you whole. Dance with fire. Dance with water. Dance with the lemon scent as it wafts from pews. How many bodies have left this way? Carried off with a last hip shake on the shoulders of friends, nephews, officiants trembling with the weight of their task. Dance with the pulpits, holding the beat of the fist. Dance with the sun steaming through colored glass. Dance with earthen walls. Dance with iron lung skies. I'll stretch my arms heavenward, push through painted ceilings, harden fingertips to punch through wood and spackle and frothy insulation. 
I'll stretch a hole wide as a thousand stars so when children shift their eyes heavenward in distraction, they may still receive the word. The word says, we are holy. The stars will agree that what we are is holier yet than the whole of the world. Thank you. Thank you all for coming out to listen to poems. It is like um, old home week in here. I love that poem so much. I, you know, every time I hear you read that poem, the, the one that ends with care, I'm just like, yeah, Samia. That's so awesome. Um, I'm going to start off with a poem called Body Worlds to X-Lady. And it's... Um, um, I'm going to read both of them. It's one of the poems that I wrote after I went to see this um, Body Worlds exhibit that was traveling around the country. I went and saw it in Montreal, and um, it's this exhibit um, that's made up of these real bodies um, of dead people um, shot through with uh, plastic so that you can kind of know how the body works and everything. And as I've said before, it's really, I think, the creepiest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and it kind of messes messed me up. And um, the uh, the ex lady poem I had to write about because as you're going through the exhibit, um, the exhibit has all of these placards there to kind of tell you this plastinate shows this plastinate shows the musculature system. This plastinate shows whatever. This plastinate shows whatever. And in the way that they had the exhibit set up in Montreal. Um, X lady was the first of the plastinates that was um, where the body was kind of exploded, divided into all of these places, and so it was like divided in all of these sections, and then the head was split so that there was just the tongue on top of the eyeballs, and you're you're going around saying this plastinate, this plastinate, this plastinate, and you get to that one, and it says this lady. Body worlds two, X lady. Her name moves away from her as if without the body it could see the monster it is. Over there hung up like desire, like art on the wall, a black barred peep show called consent. A form has been filled out, but in whose hand? If the glove does not fit, you must forget that, your own middle names, Nicole. I remember how hard it was to pull myself back, in by degrees, quickly, like yanking up office blinds, like the sound that makes accordion a ripple, like a countdown to blast off, like coming, but this is the violent opposite of that. Gender is monstrous. Her appellation, lady, but who wants to sing this song again? In from where, from where I was, almost asleep, floating, outside my body, but not even a German pseudo-scientist can find the space to which I returned. I turned a corner, and this is what I saw. This next poem is just called um, July 2005. If I can find it, where is it? July 2005, London. I, um, I, I went to London in July of 2005 and arrived um, the night before the attacks happened and so woke up and the attacks, it just so happened that I was staying in the neighborhood where they happened so it was like a triangle around me, the two tube stops that were closest to me and the bus exploded behind my house uh, or behind the flat that um, I was renting and so I thought that was weird and then 
you know, all of the, the freak out that was, that was happening, um, around there, um, and the ways in which, uh, certain people of color then get marked to, you know, look at in certain positions there. So this is July, 2005, London. In Regent's Park Gardens, verticality, spike and explosion, green, tangerining orange, yellow, careening, peach to pink, the upward momentum of purple, then stunning black, beauty of burqa, a woman, a walking eclipse. She keeps her secret a promise, the terrifying allure of her body shaded, her movement an almost silence, she whose past material, whispering air, quiet as a peregrine's glide through snowfall, the slicing of a live white through white. This next poem is called Lost, and it's um, based on a true thing that happened. Um, I lived, um, I'm from Florida, I'm originally from Florida, and I lived in a, in a house, an old converted fishing shack on an offshoot of the St. John's River with my best friend when I was in my early 20s. And one night, um, we cooked dinner for my boyfriend and his best friend at the time and had a couple of bottles of wine. And then we decided, uh, probably brought on by the bottles of wine, to take our canoe up the river and see what was in the swamp. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> From your reaction, I can see that you all know, like, what a great idea that was. <laughs> and it was after dinner, and we walked into the swamp, and the sun promptly set. And so we were lost in the swamp for a long, long time. And it's like the closest to dying that I've ever come. <laughs> so this is from that. Lost. The river, unrolled bolt of silk, gives evening the smell of fish, wet leaves, loosening matter. We glide through its blue plum tent towards night, the leftover tang of red wine in our mouths. Upstream, an idea waits for us. If we were lost, how much more would we love each other? We four move toward this losing with the steady creak and drip of our rowing. We cannot, in lowering darkness, tell direction, whether the frog's croak came from behind or before us. Our bellies full, the swamp beckons us, behind its green drapery. Whatever hides in the tangle, the surprise of cypress knees, the fierce sharp-edged palms welting our forearms as we walk blind through mottled nights, sulfur rot and sucking mud. What flies into our mouths, impossible to see. Mosquitoes lighting in our ears, their constant whine, high-pitched and crazy-making. The silent patience of gators and our wary estimation of their hunger. We will keep, we are certain, as we lose ourselves for hours. When we find ourselves again bankside and two must choose to swim because we're not where we began. The river moves, despite our stillness, our breath breathing itself into the wet heat. Whether they disappear for good, the two who splash away, their heavy kicking swallowed by this evening. I am of the two who wait, waist high in water, eyes stretched wide to see nothing but night washing itself, black over black in muggy layers inches from my face. Not my hands, skin of water, curve of meniscus, my breasts where I displace it, my undissolved legs immersed, merged 
with water, losing above, in, out of, but for these hands sliding over me, another's hands to keep me from becoming current tongue, lisp of leaf tips touching water, but for we too touching, agreeing, this is my body, agreeing, I still belong in it. Um, this next poem is one of the, the uh, several uh, sonnets that are in this book. Um, the, um, they're called R.R. Lyrae sonnets because they're named for a, a type of star. R.R. Lyrae stars are pulsating variable stars. They, they brighten and dim as they ex, uh, expand and contract. And they're used by astronomers to, to determine distances. And so in these sonnets, they have um, these openings in them, um, and other poems will kind of come into the opening to illuminate. And so in this, in this poem, there's a line from a poet named Jasper Burns who wrote, um, The Universe, That Cancer of the Hallelujah, which when I heard it the first time, I thought, yeah, that's exactly right. This is R.R. Lyrae, Will. When I am dead, I may not remember the mess of purple irises in the neighbor's garden or the way I leaned against their fence to look at him. Lost to rot the body and the soul, this is not the time nor the place. I will die when it's no longer possible for this body to show itself best. It makes me sad, the things I wanted. Love's gorgeous force, a tight fat cloud of blue hydrangea. Someone coaxed the soil to color. The universe, cancer of the hallelujah. My name in his mouth, an arrogance of vapor. A star, diminished, sucked down into paper. This next poem is the other Body Worlds poem in here. It's called Body Worlds 2, In Case. I am preparing myself, preparing to lose race. I don't know what I will do without it. This is the most unromantic way. I know how to get into the between how to exceed, divorce, erasure, corpses, diligently labeled plastinate, someone's skinned in-laws, an exhibition sold out in advance. I haven't even seen it, and I'm freaked. I keep reeling Kennedy's skull flap, too pink shot back, the reflexed hands to the throat, I'm sitting in my element at the edge of Cayuga Lake. It's spring. Why peel it back away? Look here at my beautiful foot. My windshield's clean. I rest my leg against the heating vents. My long brown foot foregrounded on the dash before the sky's excellent clear April. My silver painted pedicure. Why move beyond these slender, bark brown, silver-tipped toes? What's under my skin? Is ugly meat sinew? Who is asking and why ruin the view? Out the window, willows, branches, yellow going green, push left of their shadow-blacked trunks by wind, loose and graceful like the arms of ballerinas. Then the breeze stiffens, the skinny strands straighten, extend like stick slim legs, arabesque, on point. Look, no one wants the dead in toe shoes, but that's keeping it real keeping even the empty 
body on display. The real threat of the exhibition of seeing the one who's been posed holding his own split skin open like a flasher by its flayed edges. I'll just read a couple of more. I'll read another of those body world uh, or of those R.R. Lyre sonnets. Um, this one is R.R. Lyre Matter. I was going through a divorce when I was writing this book of poems and so like kind of thinking about the stars and, and freedom and identity and what it means and what your name means and what, what you know absence means and all of that and so this was like the poem where the whole kind of philosophy of the whole thing came together um, for me R.R. Lyre Matter He still exists as flesh It's the idea that's dissipated. Husband, what was he? But a word I loved, there is no panacea for missing syllables. His body, we all know what matter's mostly made of. Space obtains. One day I realized, I believe, the space in everything is God, that force of present Absence, pen, expanse. I grieve old-fashioned distance, squinting it into view. Between body and name, in here, I'm loose as love is, nebulous. What good? This pointillism, our eyes won't do. Sometimes the absences in us seem so profuse. I wonder we don't pass through wood. And then I'll end with the first poem in the book, which is a bop poem, which is a form that comes from Kavi Khanum, so I figured that would be appropriate. Um, this poem is called Bop the North Star, and I wrote it, again, thinking about freedom and identity and all of that. Um, I teach in a maximum security men's prison. I teach um, creative writing to the inmates at the Auburn Correctional Facility in New York, which is about an hour from Cornell, um, which is where my, my other job is. My other job. <laughs> they would love that. <laughs> my other job. Um, uh, yeah, where my other job is. And it really uh, is striking to me and disturbing to me that I, um, I have to drive past Harriet Tubman's house to get to this prison, smack in the middle of town. And so I thought, wow, thinking about the notions of freedom and where freedom is located, and yeah. So this is Bop, the North Star, Auburn, New York. Polaris sits still in the sky, and if I knew which one it was, I could follow it all the way to Auburn. Oh, Harriet who did not need the poise of freedom knocked into your head like sense, who found it more than possible to sleep, pistol shoved deep into your pocket along this route, I cannot tell a dipper from Orion. Yes, the springtime needed you. Many a star was waiting for your eyes only. The university twinkles on the hill above my house. The fat moon rises and a girl holds out her arms. She twirls in a blue Polly Flinders dress. Mama's precious cameo, a white woman's silhouette on black satin ribbon, choker tied around her neck. Poise begins here in cinders, in rhyme, in splintering beauty into this and this, the image at my throat, the summer's pitching constellations, the ten o'clock scholar's midnight lesson. Yes, the springtime needed you. Many a star was waiting for your eyes only. At the prison at Auburn, I cross the yard. Inmates wet tongues against my body, Cement, sculpted, poised for hate, pitch compliments like coins, weighed 
their silver slickening in the water, uncollected change. A guard asks, think they're beautiful? Just wait till they're out here stabbing each other. Oh, Harriet, the stars throw down shanks. Teach the sonnets a cell. Now try to escape. Yes, the springtime needed you. Many a star was waiting for your eyes only. Thank you. Hello. Thanks, everyone, for coming out. Thanks, Reggie, for inviting me. It's so nice to for inviting us, actually. And I think it's wonderful to have a deadline that's a year ago, a year ahead of time, and to still be pushing it <laughs> to make it, um, which is, I guess that's how life is. And, um, and, and Judy, who I didn't quite meet yet. Hi. <laughs> so thanks for, you know, that wonderful place, and I'm so happy everyone's here. And it's wonderful to read with Lyra and Samia. Um, I just keep thinking about how tremendous it is, the kind of implications of the body and implications of uh, and place and the ways in which I, it's very hard to read after that, I think, because I feel so devastated and um, both gutted and placed at the same time. So um, whether in Constellation or Park, Cut Body or, or a Cannot or Cigarette Pack, I, I don't know where I'm rotating, but I will say that I did a yoga class today and um, I do Bikram yoga, and I realize that when you go to different studios, you see all kinds of body types. And the studio in Baltimore, everyone was so thin, like tiny thin, almost to the point where you could actually see their vein. Like I saw a vein today. I was like, well, I didn't know there could be a vein here. And I'm really good at this particular yoga practice, so I always wait because I go in with my little roundish self. And... Um, I'm always the best, and they always say, they always say, you should compete nationally, and I say, why should I compete? I just, I just want to do well. So I started thinking about that for today's reading. I started thinking about scale, because actually the yoga instructor said to me, because I told, she, you know, she was wondering why I wasn't staying around for this competition, and I said, you know, I don't want to stay around for this competition. She said, do you have anything better to do? And I said, I have to read poems. And, and, and then she said, well, maybe you can read a poem in, a, in, in the Savasana. And I thought, you don't want me to read my poems in this yoga studio. <laughs> that would not be peaceful. So I'm going to read for about 15 to 20 minutes. And so I'm going to start with, actually, I'll go backwards. I'm going to start with um, poems from Poems of the Black Object. The Black Object's Deportment. The black object's phlegm is green in the center of a milky white, which is less of a shock than the look that passes between it and the thin mustache of a black that waits for its release. One object waits for the other to form a mouth. It sees pink lips shaped to blow waste. A black object, realizing it is being watched, would normally hold the lug in until the corner. In fact, it knows one should spit as little as possible, leastwise upon a floor. But here, on a street, approaching a corner, in an instance where one has an audience, the black object lets go. Lazy-lidded eyes vanish into a head. The black object thinks for its spit it is met with both expectation and disdain. But one black wanted it from the other, should spit more often, it thinks. In a post office line, the black object sees an image of a black drawn in charcoal who is supposed to be in a hoodie but whose upper torso and face emerge like a head in a pod from a bag. Without a wholly visible head, there is only a flat layer of eyes that float from a sketched surface. Nothing is recognizable beyond the shape of a nose and the cross hatching around his eyes. Just when the black object begins to think about that partial black face, how the head is sealed or not sealed, in hood or plastic, a jerry-curled object with a light black baby screams, Hurry up! Or, You next! Of course, the black object who hates poor behavior turns around and casts fast disdain back to the rough black curl who screams, saying to her, Calm down or relax. 
Sometimes, if one says, calm down or relax to a crass black object, that object will operate much like a flag at the end of a wind's tether. Flapping, this is the case. I'm from L.A. Looking down to the silent child, the flapper asked, huh, baby? The black object's catalyst. Your face gets you to a lake. Wind chimes in pear, slice near a window. This fruit laid in a spiral and locked to Jarlsberg cheese, staircased in a row with crackers, is yours. In celebration of your face, you think, if you were born to vitiligo lips and naps instead of clear skin and curl, what $65,000 per square acre land would you ever get to see? On the drive to this spot, there were llamas in a field, African longhorn steer, goats that look like they've been amputated in half, pine trees wave in the wind and reflect on the glass table on a deck that extends over the water. On the railing is an abalone's husk. Its meat is gutted. Mother of pearl left to catch ash. What if your face were stripped away from this house? Would you remember red, the hummingbird's throat? The black object's elasticity. It's not as though I felt my body. It's not like I will ever return in a room where midnight blue coats the wall and a black light is bolted to the ceiling. A shirt glows white. A horizon of two bulbs cut the room to a yellow-painted galaxy in the corner. Not from daylight or window, I escape fluorescence. Fuck you. Enjoy your hike back to New York. I'm confused. I'm not even sure why I'm doing this. Answering machines can take such, but how to take being called an idiot by an illiterate and to be recalled by that name until three in the morning by this stranger, an alcoholic, a truck driver who eats steak and beans. There are ways to evade abuse, some of which have to do with finding a replica of your abuser. One face becomes another face, the red eyes of a lover whose wife is sick, who longs for she-males, who has left his ten acres and lives in a beige box in a trailer park, are replaceable by the right tuft of beard. I will always remember that flash of his body, where the hips slip to a redness peeling off the buttock, the rotted nail in the toe or the teddy bear in the bed the therapist wanted him to cuddle. What I want is to extend from one decay to another, beer breath to yellow teeth to his eyes sunk to hurt. I feel like a disembodied car part, a pop-up headlight's internal arm that breaks, then stabs the radiator, dooming the engine. I know the difference between the engine's injury and the knife in the dish rack. My running is clear as the distance between the moon running at night and the treadmill running in place. I'll, I'll read one really long poem from I mean I'm just I don't know why the black eye actually these aren't even the poems that I selected but I was inspired by my friends I was inspired to read in these places so um it's a little harsh I'll just I'll just read the first this is a series of three Uh, I'll just read the first because it's a little bit it's a little bit much this is a daytime poem for my for my friends in the yoga studio blood In the hotel, there is a bathroom that smells like bleach. Down the hall is a room next to the bathroom which smells like crack, if this is what crack smells like. In this room, there is a big black fly on the bed. You're not certain if you remember the fly there in that room or in another bed in a different hotel altogether. In either case, the room is hot and small, and the fly latched to some surface is as big and black as the blood is dark. You had no idea he was bleeding. If you knew, you would not have allowed him to take you to this hole that you can this hotel that you can barely remember. You think about saturation and the way you lifted up the back of his dress shirt. The blood you recall is a thick lacquer on the back of his boxers, a slick red soak as though someone stabbed him up the ass. He did what anybody would do after such an attack. He bled. You knew something was wrong when you saw the small blood stain on the front of the shirt along its right bottom curve, the dry mark he pulled out of his pants after he must have tucked it in wet. When you saw the source, you said, Oh my God, and yelled that there was absolutely no way you were going to do anything with him, but you don't want to remember that refusal. 
You want to remember when he said, you know by the eyes. Perhaps you agreed, yes, you're right, I knew by your eyes. You could have had him before even looking into them, eyes not longing but lost, not seductive but desperate. It was the way he peered out from around a row of others at the urinals, wide and owlish. It was his tortoise-shell glasses, along with the grade of his sweater, that placed him from, say, Stamford. He is old and has white hair, which you think was blonde at some point, especially after seeing the stray hairs that shot out of the zipper of his wide well cords when he faked pissing to shake his dick at you. Despite his uncut, hardening penis that poked out of his pants, there was something else you remember, that he combed his hair against the curl and how you looked up at him, picking the Labrador wife hair from his sweater like you loved him. He threw his coat on the hotel floor, but you do not remember the train ride to the floor where the coat lay. What you remember is walking down 42nd Street and putting his arms and him putting his arm around you, feeling like you were his and that from you he could have anything. A little blood on the shirt tells not that bad. You may have thought, but when he pulled his pants down and you saw the bloody boxers, you stopped. Even though he said, it's only in the back, you can take care of the front. You pulled away, warned him about the dangers of hepatitis and HIV, lied when you kissed him on the cheek and said it was not his fault, even though you knew it was his fault to be so carelessly bloody. You cannot stop thinking about the blood in his pants while he waits on the platform for the train back to his home, his Labrador, his wife. You think that he may collapse, that he is bleeding like you imagine the dead to bleed when their bodies give up. You both know what he cannot control as you watch him enter the train a few cars ahead of you. And I'll read one tiny poem begins this collection, and I'll just read a couple from the, the, the older book. On the sea train, the black object ponders Amuzati's family eaten in the Congo. Cut the adults. Huckam done the chest. The deceased lumps. In the story of edible blacks hacked and splayed on lattice, how am I to finish the dishes with all this dining in my instance? Unremit by brown lung, blisters are blisters, dry by sun, bucks into bits. Lattice works, business is business after all, but did the black fat back deserve its end like the tick I popped? Sure, if the tick could, it would visa out of grip, but sorry, the sweet, sweet spleens. In the magazine NYT, a teeny pink baby teeters on the crease of a big palm, cream and light. Daddy, I am so hungry for some pig. Such hunger subwayed the crust on the biddleax head, skin where hair, a spiral spurns beneath the flesh. Ringworm, rungum, crunk of nap, mother to baby, shut up, don't touch me, suck candy, suck it, come on now, child. So there are those two anonymous voices that, that have bookended that reading. I don't know if they're the same person. I am, through it all, tortured by people, tortured, <laughs> suffering. So I'm going to read, hmm. The Brown Boy's Black Father Loses It. My father um, actually was just recently diagnosed with Alzheimer's, or um, I guess late stages of dementia, and I realized that this poem kind of prefigured some of the craziness, because he's really going crazy. So it kind of prefigured some of this. In, in dreams, I sort of saw it in dreams, so it kind of this, this poem prefigured his, these symptoms. So um, the brown boy's black father loses it. Although this is just an, a character. It's not really me. In the dream, the brown boy's father is crazy. He is naked and has come out into a kitchen scattered with open boxes, his cock shiny, hard, and sticking straight into the room. The brown boy knows he must get his father to a mirror so he can get him to look at his own eyes. If he could only drag him out of the kitchen and down the hallway where he sees a mirror against a wall, he thinks maybe he can save him. The brown boy is not fearful. He feels the presence of his entire family in his head as though he's speaking to them all on the phone, each one of them lying quiet on the line, hoping that he will be able to save his father. So he holds him and drags, pulling his father closer to the mirror at the end of the hall. The brown boy thinks if he shows his father his own eyes, he can snap him out of it, get his clothes on, get his cock down and soft so they can head back home. As he holds him, his father begins to shit. 
The brown boy knows this is a dream, that his own black father is not crazy, not lacking control. But in the dream, the brown boy realizes that he has this job to do. He must take care of his father, who is losing it. In real life, the brown boy remembers this story from when they lived in Tennessee. His father took the family to a barbecue where the brown boy stared into a field behind the fence at the small white face of an animal he could not name. As he stared, the animal stared back. The brown boy wanted to shoot it. He wanted to kill whatever it was. But when he returned, BB gun ready to the spot where he first saw the tiny white face, the animal was gone. He remembers the slow drive back from the barbecue to the small military base where they'd lived. His father, drunk, zigzagged from one side of the road to the next. To the brown boy, his brother and sister, this was all a game. Maybe their father was swerving on purpose, racing back and forth as though between pylons. When they got home and his father sat on the octagon end table made of marble and cherry that he bought home from Japan and began pissing, their brown boy knew that this wasn't play. The yellow liquid spreading in one sheet from the table's marble center to the wooden edges, dripping onto the lattice doors down to the rug. He remembers his brown mother, angry and quick with a sponge and bucket, trying to catch some of the flood his black father released, sopping up his drunken freedom. In his dream, the brown boy holds his black father tight as the shit floods out of him. The brown boy begins to cry, saying, Sweet father, sweet father, sweet father, holding him as his father lets go. In bed, when the white man, while meditating, asks the brown boy to lie back between his legs, the brown boy cannot. How could he, after realizing that, like this, how much his mother's love made her willing to absorb what his father could not control? How could he, after realizing how much he was willing to do the same? Out of the dream, the brown boy sat on the pot, piss shot between the lid's gap, cascading outside down the bull's neck. Of course, he caught himself well before he realized how much he was like his black father as he gobbed the piss at the base with the toilet paper, absorbing all of it. I'm going to read one more poem because we get to talk about Tiger Woods later. I hope over like lots of food. <laughs> lots of food. And I, um, I didn't mark this poem, but I thought it would be appropriate because, you know, that Serena Williams, I follow her like crazy. I'm all about Serena. I'm all about her you know, telling this person to stuff the fucking ball down the lines judge's fucking throat. I love it. <laughs> I also love the way she, she, you know, during the press interview, she said, I don't remember what I said. <laughs> I love that, Serena. Now, I, so, I'll just finish with this poem, which I will dedicate to the car that was smashed by, I don't know, Tiger, Elon wife, the Tiger's Wood Elon, who smashed the, the Escalade. Wasn't it great? He's driving this Escalade. I love it. So it's all about her golf clubs, or his golf clubs that were used as, you know, window breakers, I guess. Serena Williams' whiteness and the act of writing. The brown boy is afraid because he can't tell exactly what his work is. He identifies with Serena Williams, the gorgeous black tennis star who was booed at Indian Wells. The rumor is that her father, Richard, fixed an earlier match in the tournament where she was to play her sister, Venus, who pulled out with tendinitis in her knees seconds before they were about to begin. The theory is that he rigged this meeting just as he did their all-Williams-Wimbledon semifinal where Serena is rumored to have thrown the contest. In his apartment in Brooklyn, the brown boy has dozens of photos of both sisters that plaster the walls above his computer. In the one where they are standing next to one another at Wimbledon, Serena's crying. Venus's consoling arm is around her sister's shoulder. This photo is next to cut-up shots of two old men with fat cocks, a collage he made and covered with a sheet of paper that reads, Travel Log. Behind this cover, one man is bald and his eyes are glazed shut. The other is all crotch, grainy, black and white hands, fat fingers and thigh. When he thinks of the connection between his sad sisters and his turned-on old man, old men strangers caught sucking and being sucked and covered, he feels that his mind is one confused object that pulses about unknowing, wound up, a note towards itself with no answers but the need to cut, suspend, look, paste, cover and tape. 
Each piece locks up to the next, making sense only in his own mind. Somehow he thinks, if he could bring these shots together, things would start to make sense, the whole of them becoming more like a finished puzzle. What would it have been like if when the brown boy was small playing tennis with his mother at Cabrillo Park, he could have imagined being Serena instead of Tracy Austin? He liked Tracy because of her size, the small pink purse of her mouth, her tough little ponytails, pony tennis shoes, and short triangular one-piece dresses. He loved what the announcers called her moonballing, the way she hit the ball high over the net, back and forth, looping it deep against an opponent like Andrea Yeager or Chris Everett. Though the brown boy's father taught him a one-handed backhand for better reach and cleaner volleys, the brown boy switched to two because of the power he felt he could have striking the ball double-fisted. It was as though he had no choice but to hit with two hands, to forget what his father taught him, and to rear back and try to stroke the ball with the whole of Amelian Island, Tracy's crowd behind him. What would have happened to a small, dreaming brown frame of a body if it had not pudged out into the impossible desire to be white, small, and a girl like Tracy Austin? What if he could have seen Serena then, imagine invading her body, becoming her muscled frame, pounding the ball back into oblivion? What if he could have seen her powerful torque unleashing and winning against all that booing at Indian Wells? Still, he finds himself, while swimming, shaking his head forward, and to the left, his fingers brushing aside an imagined blonde slick of chlorine waterlogged hair, stuck, then freed from in front of his eyes. But he also remembers when he was six that his hair was straight, and even when dry it lay flat on his head, there is a photo of him, his face covered by the gaping bottom of an R.C. paper cup stuck around his mouth. His hair then is straight and light brown, bleached by the sun, flat and just lying there. The quiet of this picture and the smooth down curls that he palms down to his grown-up head remind him again of who he is and who he is not. Thank you all very much for coming. Thank you, Lyra, Samia, and Ronaldo.